I'm Martha Gill. I'm with Friends of the Library. Duncan Macillus will discuss his own book, Ducktown Smoke, the Fight Over One of the South's Greatest Environmental Disasters. The story of how the people of southern Appalachia took on the copper miners and changed an environmental law and Appalachian conservation forever. Please welcome Mr. Macillus. Hello, and thank you for coming. I've enjoyed talking to many of you before the presentation, and I know this is a very sharp crowd with a lot of people who have very direct knowledge of Ducktown, including a member of the firm that represented Tennessee Copper Company 100 years ago. So I'll try to stay on my game and do a good job. It's hard to create a desert in a place that gets 60 inches of annual rainfall, but that is what happened at Ducktown. The impact of extensive logging, compounded by the impact of sulfur dioxide smelter fumes, stripped the landscape of vegetation, and with that tremendous annual rainfall, in many places up to 16 feet of soil and substrata were washed away, and almost all of it went down the Ocoee River. In the Cleveland Public Library, I came across a uh, little manuscript written by a woman named Dora T. Galloway. She was the daughter of a miner. And she explained how her family moved from the mountains of North Carolina, as so many of them did, to come into the Ducktown Basin where Papa could get a wage income working for the mines. And proud fort, proud miners, proud mining family. But she did notice the difference. She grew up in a cabin that was surrounded by endless forest. Then she spent her childhood living in a miner's cabin in a place where it was not noticeable for the trees, but for the lack thereof. The thing that seized her imagination was the one tree still standing in her uh, neighborhood. Coming from endless Appalachian hardwood forest to a place where there is one tree. She spoke about how it was when she traveled on the train from the Ducktown Basin to visit relatives. The train heads north from um, McKaysville, goes around the basin, and then it punches through the little gap there by Three Wit and Stanbury Mountain. And immediately on the other side, the woods return. It's like light, dark, desert, woods. It was just like that because of the impact of the damage and about how it was shaped by the surrounding landscape. Now, before we get into explaining how that all happened and what it meant, I want to touch on a couple points about history. History defined is simply the study of change over time, how things change over the course of time. One wise person put it this way, the past is a different country. They do things differently there. And that's important to keep in mind, especially when we look at situations that we now characterize as environmental issues. At the time all of this occurred, 100 years ago, the science of ecology did not even exist. I have read thousands of pages of court documentation and all the way up to the Supreme Court and back, and there is not one mention of the word ecology or environment in any of it. The terms simply weren't in use. The uh, study of ecology as a field 
really didn't arise until the 1930s, and of course it became much more widely known thanks to things like uh, Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, and then uh, with uh, Earth Day and uh, all the events that now come to modern memory. But the point is that when we look back at what happened then, it wouldn't do to say, I can't believe they did that. Instead, we need to see it through the eyes of the people who were living there, the importance of the industry, an industry that was so important that all three bordering states, Tennessee, North Carolina, and Georgia, were in a race to get a railroad to Ducktown because they valued that industry and they wanted it to prosper, and they knew it would be the key to prosperity in the southern Appalachian Mountains. That's what they valued. And, of course, it's not fair to evaluate past practices in terms of modern-day technology or science, for that matter. So the past is a different country. The other thing I want to touch on about history is a quote I came across from the University of Georgia Libraries. History does not exist for us until and unless we dig it up, interpret it, and put it together. Then the past comes alive. Where do we do our digging? Well, I'm not an archaeologist, but I did get my fingers dirty, and here's how. When I started this project, I hit the archives. There's a wonderful collection of materials at the Georgia Archives, the Tennessee State Library. I went to the Cleveland State Library and uh, National Archives in Washington, and if I'd known better, I would have come here too. So don't feel slighted. I can't get it all. But what I was digging through is old documents that have been carefully preserved by libraries, historical societies, and museums. That is where the past comes alive, by looking at those documents. And all credit goes to the East Tennessee Historical Society and sister organizations, the Ducktown Basin Museum and the State Archives, because that is where the past is dug up so we can interpret it and put it together and make it come alive. Here's how it came alive for me. A lot of folks ask me, how did I get into this thing? Well, like many Atlantans, I took a trip in the mountains one day, and I was coming up through Blue Ridge, took that little highway off to the left. And as soon as I crossed over the Coe River from McKaysville and the Copper Hill and then turned that corner, I said, what is that? And it was a gigantic Tennessee Copper Company complex sitting on a bluff, most of which was made out of iron slag. This was an enormous complex, and the first time I saw it, the rail yards there were still full of tank cars carrying sulfuric acid that they manufactured there. You'd go around the corner and immediately see this is not the southern Appalachian Mountain hardwood forest landscape that I would expect, and I knew that something different had gone on here on a massive scale. And then I went to the Ducktown Basin Museum, excellent museum. They do a fine job of what a local museum ought to do, and that's to celebrate the heritage and culture of the community and to make it uh, open to others. Well, that stuck in my mind for quite a few years, and then as it happened, I decided to take a break from my legal career and pursue a Ph.D. in history. And then when I was there, had an excellent course on environmental history, got really enthused about the subject and understood all the different things that were coming with it and began to look for a project as doctoral students have to do. The first one I was working on was frankly boring. It bored me to tears. It bored my wife. But when I kept looking at the documents in the Georgia archives, I kept running across 
governor's correspondence, so many of them had the little pencil notation, a file notation on it saying Ducktown. So what Ducktown? Oh, I've been to Ducktown. What's going on about Ducktown? Why are there so many letters here? And then there was a wonderful clue in the index prepared by the archives, an index of the governor's correspondence, and a very sharp archivist wrote in there saying the materials for this period touched extensively on the issue of the copper mining and smelter smoke at Ducktown. This would be a worthy subject for research. <laughs> God bless that archivist, because I took her at her word. Well, it was a home run for me, because I am a lawyer, and just like a doctor or a nurse can look at a medical chart and see things that a layman would not, I can look at litigation and see things that a non-lawyer might not. And here I had a combination of a powerful environmental story and at the same time a legal story. And then there's one thing that made it pop and come alive, and that was the materials available at the Ducktown Basin Museum. Every historian wants to work with original documents, and especially ones that have not been examined or written up by others. Well, I went to the Ducktown Basin Museum on a return trip, met the director, Ken Rush, a fine fellow, and does a great job directing that on a small budget, but that's the nature of the job at small museums, isn't it? But I told him what I was up to and explained enough of my uh, ongoing research so he could take me seriously, and I asked him if he had any materials that might shed some light, and he said, yes. <laughs> it happened that there had been a huge pile of company documents that had been laying moldering in a heap under the leaky roof of a now-abandoned company store. They were in such bad shape that some folks were thinking of just chunking them down a mine shaft as rubbish. The museum heard about that, and Ken and the museum supporters said, no, no, no. And uh, they went over there and rescued those documents, dried them out, and boxed them up. The timing was such that when I got there and looking at the documents for that period, I was the first person to examine these things in generations. He set me up on a folding table in the museum right in the display room. Atlanta. <laughs> Here you have all these wonderful exhibits in this museum, and then on display, an Atlanta lawyer. Gee. Uh, he actually moves and talks. But uh, he brought out box after box of those original documents. Many cases I had to brush the dirt and the mildew off of them, take the old fasteners that had long since rusted, and I kept thinking, are my tetanus shots up to date? But I was overjoyed because these were powerful documents. They told the inside story. Now, my lawyer friends in this audience know that there's a great deal of difference between the documents that are formally filed with the courts, the trial courts and with the appellate courts. That is one set of documentation or with the evidence that is officially admitted into evidence. But every lawyer working on a case knows that there is a whole bunch more back in the office that for good reason stays in the office. What I was seeing was documents from 100 years ago from the back office that gave me an insight to how these cases were put together about the smoke suits and to see things that I couldn't have seen anywhere else. All the more so because the district court records of Polk County were lost in a fire in the 1930s. God bless the museums and the libraries and the archives. It was very, very difficult to get to Ducktown until the railroad arrived in 1890. Before then, 
at the very outset, let's say, in the 1840s, right after the Cherokee removal, the only way to get from Ducktown to the Tennessee Valley was by a footpath over the mountains. There was no road down the Ocoee Gorge. It was just one waterfall after another, and the same with the Hiawassee Gorge a little bit further north. No transportation by a wagon between the basin and the Tennessee Valley. And the roads were just as bad and miserable in every other direction. This land was so isolated that even the Cherokees thought it was a backwater. And when the Tennessee government put the property up for lottery after the Cherokee removal, oh, they started at $5 an acre for good land and then it incrementally drop it bit by bit. This land went for a penny an acre. Penny an acre land. Nobody had any value in it until uh, prospectors started poking around. It happened that one of the motives for the Cherokee removal was the discovery of gold in Dahlonega, Georgia. The state of Georgia thought that the gold should be handled by the state and by what they considered its citizens as opposed to the Indians who all had a legal right to be there. Be that as it may, their hopes were all the miners and prospectors are poking around the mountain saying, I'm going to find gold, I'm going to find gold. And one fellow named Lemons came into the Ducktown Basin, and then he saw some shiny material on the ground, and he thought, oh, I've struck it rich. He filled every pocket he could with this shiny material. In fact, running out of pockets, he tied strings around the pant legs on the bottom and then filled his pants with this shiny material. <laughs> and having filled everything he could with this shiny material, he then drank himself into a stupor celebrating. And then he woke up in the morning and found out he found pyrite. It all turned rusty brown. What he didn't realize was that he discovered the single richest load of copper in the entire South. At the time of this discovery, there were only two great deposits of copper in the whole country. One was on Lake Superior, which, of course, is just as equally bad to get to, especially in winter. And then the other one's here in the South. Copper is a valuable item if you know what to do with it. The Indians did. There's uh, Ducktown Copper is in Indian artifacts in uh, the Etowah Mounds and in other places around the south. But what we needed copper for, of course, was copper itself and the fact that it makes brass and it makes bronze. All fine machinery needed those materials. Wire needed that material if you're going to make telegraph wires when that uh, developed. Ships needed the copper to sheathe the wooden bottoms of their ships so that the uh, sea worms would not eat up the wood. So we had the greatest load of copper here, but we're in an isolated place with no roads and no way to get to the Tennessee Valley. What to do? There was a fellow named Campbell that put his mind to it and said, I'm going to carve a road down the Ocoee Basin. He got some of the uh, Cherokees that still remained after the removal and a whole bunch of black powder, and he blasted a road from Ducktown all the way through the Ocoee Gorge to create the Copper Road. That's now Highway 64, going down the Ocoee Gorge to connect Ducktown to the nearest rail place at Cleveland, Tennessee, a 40-mile trip. That's the Copper Road. And as soon as that happened, the industry exploded in the 1850s. There was copper mines going up everywhere. And they quickly realized that it was expensive to ship raw ore to be refined someplace else. Instead, it was a whole lot cheaper to refine the ore on spot. How did they refine the ore in Ducktown? In the 1850s and all the way up into the first decade of the 1900s, copper ore at Ducktown was smelted 
by open heap roasting. The process involved crushing the ore and then setting piles of it on top of charcoal and lumber and setting the entire business on fire. And then the whole point of the fire was the sulfur would continue the combustion, and these fires would burn each uh, heap for three or four months to expel the sulfur, and, of course, it went straight into the atmosphere, the sulfur dioxide. Once they got that done, then they could do some more smelting inside furnaces. But that was how the industry was run. That was the state of technology. They didn't do it because they liked the process. That was the only way to do it. They hated the fact that it took three or four months to move a pile of ore from basic ore to refined, semi-refined copper. It was the slowest part of the process. But there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these heaps burning all times. There's two ways that that impacted Ducktown. First of all, until the railroad arrived in 1890, the entire industry ran on wood. They logged 50 square miles of forest all around Ducktown. Some of it, of course, went for mining and uh, building timber. But the bulk of it went into making charcoal to feed the smelting process. Second, with the smelting generating all that amount of smoke, the smoke is sulfur dioxide. Why? Because Ducktown copper ore is very rich in sulfur, 25%. 2,000 pounds of Ducktown ore creates, has 500 pounds of sulfur, which creates 1,000 pounds of sulfur dioxide gas. What happens when sulfur dioxide gas mixes with moisture? You get sulfuric acid precipitating back down on the vegetation. This smoke was impossibly thick. Old-timers talk about having to put bells on their horses in the daytime so they wouldn't uh, run into somebody else on the roads. Farmers complained that the constant smoke took the edges off their tools, and well, it might if you have acid dripping on the edges of your axes and hoes. And, of course, the greatest damage was to the crops. That's what was starting the uh, smoke suits. And about 1897, there were a group of ten local farmers from three different states. They were uh, from... Tennessee, Georgia, North Carolina, they're all there in that same pocket. They all knew each other. And they all filed suit against the Ducktown Sulphur Copper and Iron Company. Tennessee Copper Company wasn't quite in play at that moment, but it soon would be. What was the complaint about? Were these folks eco-warriors? No. They didn't have the language. The science hadn't developed. That was not what they were arguing about. Were they Luddites like the old hand weavers in England who destroyed the weaving mills because it put them out of work? No. These folks were grateful for the copper companies. Why? Mountain farming was hard work at any good time, but it was made all the harder by the fact that it was difficult to bring cops to market. But here, these farmers had the biggest market in the southern Appalachian Mountains. There was 10,000 miners in their families who would buy everything the farmers could grow. So what was the problem? Here you have a quote from one of the petitions by A.J. Bell, a farmer. He said, he was amply able to support himself and family from the farm by raising good crops of grain and all kinds of fruits and vegetables and bee culture and could carry the market to market some of the crops, etc., before the smoke. But now he could sell nothing. They sued because they were not able to participate in that economy. 
They wanted to raise crops and sell it to the local mining community, but with their crops dying, they couldn't do that. They were put out of business. So uh, those folks who know about the smoke suits at all in Ducktown may have heard about the great Supreme Court case, Georgia versus Tennessee Copper Company, which I'll get to. But what I found was that there are two to 300 private smoke suits filed by local farmers and then later on by the industrial loggers who had been working in the surrounding mountains. What were they suing for? There was only one environmental law, if you will, at the time, and that was the law of nuisance. Now, the lawyers in the crowd know that when lawyers talk about nuisance suits, we're usually meaning a different kind of nuisance. A nuisance suit in the ordinary parlance is a semi-bogus claim for an injury over a minor incident. The person who slips on the grape and wants to sue the Kroger for $100 million. Actually, what they're hoping to do is get a quick settlement of a couple thousand and then everybody goes home. That's a nuisance suit. But nuisance in the common law was the idea that a person had a right to uh, file a suit if the actions of somebody else interfered with their own use and enjoyment of their own property. It's a lawsuit about the interference with one's enjoyment of one's own property. That's what's going on here. The law was very ancient. It came from England by way of the common law. It arose in the Middle Ages, and it worked pretty well on local situations. You know, in fact, I was looking at a bunch of nuisance cases here in the Tennessee courts, and they're quite interesting. You have someone in Nashville complaining that someone opened a fireworks operation right next door. I would be upset if someone made a fireworks factory next to my house because I'd be afraid that they'd blow me up. And similarly, if you're in a residential neighborhood and someone wants to open up a hog lot, a slaughtering operation, soap making, candle making, all these things are smelly or disgusting industries. Very useful, very important, of course, but who wants them right next door? The interference is with the use and enjoyment. You have to have a property interest to make a nuisance case. You have to be an owner or at least a renter or a leaseholder. The liability was strict. That meant if you could show that there was an interference, the court had to give you a remedy. There were two remedies available, and this is very important in Tennessee. You could either sue for damages, which in Tennessee meant you had to sue in the district court, or you could sue for an injunction, a court order, to reduce or stop the smoke. But you had to do that in Tennessee's court of chanceries because Tennessee separates the courts of law and the courts of chancery. And there was a lot of smoke suitors who asked for the wrong thing in the wrong court, and as soon as they did, they got dismissed and had to refile in the right court. And there weren't that many terms of court in Polk County back in those days, so that meant they had to wait a long time. How did the companies respond? The Ducktown Company, which was headquartered in London, and then the Tennessee Copper Company, headquartered in uh, New York City, both did what lawyers always do. Lawyers are advocates for their own companies, and I say that without apology. I work for a corporate law firm, and I know who pays my bills and what my job is. is to represent our clients while someone else is fervently representing their clients. That's how the system works. What was the best way for the copper companies to represent their clients? It was by keeping these cases away from the jury in the first place because juries are picked from among local farmers, and the odds are that if a case got to a jury, they would award damages. And so the copper companies led a brilliant campaign that lasted over half a decade 
of finding every work of the procedural law, that is how you do a case, the rules for doing a case, and then substantive law, that is the actual law of the case, and uh, kept these cases marching up and down the appellate ladder for well over a decade. The environmental paradigm here, again, no ecology, nothing here except for the idea that smoke was an interfering or damaging agent to property interests. And then the politics, we'll talk in a minute about how the politics of the case reshaped Tennessee law. Those first 10 cases were collected under the uh, Ducktown Sulphur Copper and Iron Company versus Barnes. That's how it went up on appeal. Ten farmers, they litigated for a long time, seven years. The results, the farmers won on every point of law after many, many appeals, but seven of the claimants dropped out. They were just worn out. Perhaps they settled on the side. Only three recovered damages. And even when the initial damages were awarded, the companies appealed the level of damages, and here's the final amounts. Mr. Madison got $100. Another fellow got $92.50, and Mr. Madison's mother got a dollar. Those are hard times, and they had low wages, but I mean seven years of litigation to get a dollar doesn't work. The company, frankly, called this strategy, and this is one of these hidden gems I found in the letters. There was a letter from uh, Ducktown's lawyer to Ducktown management. It said, uh, we're pursuing our strategy of keeping a blocked docket. The idea was that they could stuff the courts with procedural uh, issues. Uh, They would tie the cases up, and they wouldn't get to the jury. It was interesting that to that extent, the Ducktown Company hired a fellow named James G. Parks. He was a circuit court judge in Cleveland, but he happened to be the state's leading expert on procedural law and wrote a handbook on that that's in the law library. I went over there yesterday to speak uh, to the law school, and uh, they pulled the book out for me. Why did they hire him? He wrote the book. He knew every twist and turn there was, and he used all of them. And it worked for a while, but then he eventually wrote a letter saying, we've about run out of reasons for injunctions. These cases are going to start reaching the jury, and sure enough, they did. In the meantime, the companies were working to reshape the law. And this reflects, again, the tension that was happening in nuisance law all across the country. Nuisance law was a local remedy for a local problem, but it fit very badly when applied to a situation involving regional industries. Let's give an example away from copper. Chicago used to have the massive union stockyards where they process hundreds of thousands of cattle every day, every week, every month. At any rate, biggest operation in the country. It wouldn't do to shut that down because the neighbors said that, well, I don't like the smell of all of your operations. Those cattle are smelly. Instead, someone would say the argument ought to go in terms of the fact that there are tens of thousands of people employed here and tens of thousands of others who rely upon those wages. We've got to keep that in consideration. But nuisance had a strict liability standard. You offend the property owner's interest, you pay, or you take injunction. So there was a movement all across the country to reshape the law of nuisance to speak to the realities of industry. And that was happening here in Tennessee a number of uh, issues were sent to the legislature for their consideration. I'll give you three of them. One was an attempt to redefine nuisance to exclude rural smokestack industry. That is to say, we're out in the boonies, we're making smoke, but we're out in the boonies, so not a big problem. It shouldn't be nuisance. That one failed. There was a strong progressive element in the legislature at the time, and they caught that one. There was an attempt to offset the damages awarded in suits at law by 
computing incidental benefits, for instance. Yes, your crops are damaged, but look, your property is actually worth this much more because you're near the copper industry, so let's offset. That failed. And then they wanted to legislatively adopt the balancing of interest test, and this one succeeded in a funny way. For a while, they're having trouble getting anywhere with this legislation because they're putting it into the legislature through Polk County legislators. But the local interests were watching that, and every time it would happen, they'd raise a hue and cry, and then they'd fight the bills, and they'd get defeated. The copper companies got smart. They introduced their last set of bills through a legislator in Memphis, and nobody was looking because he was, what, three or 400 miles away? And no one got through. Here's how it played out. The farmers nearly shut down the copper industry by filing an injunction suit. Here's the Madisons again. These are mountaineers, and they're scrappy people, and they don't like being pushed around. One of my favorite quotes in this book, in fact, comes from uh, Margaret Madison when she was complaining about the Ducktown Company. Remember it had London ownership? She said, counted herself among the small farmers in a rural district who were contented and happy until the recent smoke damage, according to her own declaration, she was unwilling to see her home wrecked, her patrimony destroyed, and in her old age be driven out by her lordly neighbors from Great Britain. <laughs> I mean, it's only 125 years since the American Revolution, but we're not going to forget. <laughs> that very strong streak of independence that you so value and so love was showing up in these lawsuits because it took a lot of nerve and grit to be a rural mountaineer farmer and take on the copper industry. But they nearly did it. Uh, they took their injunction suit, and the Tennessee Court of Chancery Appeals granted the injunction, which instantly terrified everybody. Newspapers in Atlanta and newspapers right here in Knoxville were saying, this is not sensible. This is going to put a great industry out of business and with all the folks who rely upon it. And uh, copper lawyers, together with their counterparts in the railroad industry, uh, did some successful lobbying, and they also wrote some very good briefs and took the matter up to the Tennessee Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court reversed the granting of the injunctions in the Madison case. And here's what they said. Remember that balancing of interest test I told you about? Here's how it worked. This is from the court's decision. In order to protect by injunction several small tracts of land aggregating in value less than $1,000, we are asked to destroy other property worth nearly $2 million and wreck two great mining and manufacturing enterprises that are engaged in work of very great importance, and not only to their owners but to the state and the whole country as well. In short, when they weighed the interests of a small group of mountain farmers and the farms that they saw as not being very valuable against the interests of this industry and all the people who relied upon it, the balance tipped that way, and that was the last serious injunction suit ever filed by the farmers. They continued to process the uh, smoke damage suits. But now let's change the chapter. Georgia jumped into the case in 1904. Why the state of Georgia? Well, let's tease this out. Georgia was no more enlightened about smoke or industrial pollution than any other state in the country. The laws of Georgia and Tennessee were pretty much the same that way. And Georgia wasn't about to eliminate smokestack industry in its state. After all, that's where Henry Grady was writing from the Atlanta Constitution with the New South and the idea that we've got to quit relying solely on cotton. We want industry, industry, industry. More to the point, Georgia 
was willing to tolerate messy mining on its own turf. It happened that with the uh, Dahlonega gold strike, people developed what's called hydraulic mining, and this is essentially uh, hosing down whole mountainsides with high-pressure water coming out of fire hoses. You wash away the mountains, it goes into the streams, they put it through their little machines to separate the silt from the gold, and all these companies were getting created by the legislature with names for the rivers they were about to destroy because there's nothing more destructive to a river than hydraulic mining. Georgia didn't care. They did it all the time. So why did they care about here? I think it has to do with the idea about the golden goose. No government is eager to kill an economic golden goose. But whose goose was it? Tennessee's, not Georgia. These companies were on the Tennessee side of the line. In fact, Tennessee Copper Company was just a few hundred yards across the border, and the Ducktown Company was only four miles further in Isabella. But as far as Georgia was concerned, Tennessee got all the taxes. In fact, their old saying used to go that uh, the copper companies are like a cow that uh, feeds in Ducktown Basin and gets milked in Benton at the county seat. <laughs> but Georgia didn't get any taxes. By the way, there weren't any income taxes or sales taxes in place at the time, so they didn't get the benefit of that either. As far as Georgia was concerned, all they got was a smoke. There were a lot of damaged Georgia farmers. They felt like they were getting beat up in the Tennessee courts, and they wanted some state pressure. So the legislators leaned on the Georgia Assembly. The Georgia Assembly did what they always do in situations like this. They appointed a study commission, but they happened to appoint a good one, state chemist and a few other knowledgeable people. They came back with a report saying, yep, it's pretty bad up there, and the governor and the attorney general needed to file suit. Well, now the tricky stuff started happening. Georgia had a tough time making a case out because, remember, the case, a nuisance law depended on a property interest. But Georgia, when they acquired the property from the Cherokees, immediately put it up for lottery and sold it to private hands. Georgia did not have any public domain land up there. So they had a hard time trying to create a property interest. Uh, What did they want? This is the key point. They wanted relief from the smelter smoke. They wanted an injunction, but they did not want to destroy the industry. The Attorney General was crystal clear about that, John C. Hart, and made sure he put a statement to that effect in his annual report. We are not seeking to destroy this great industry. We want an injunction to reduce the smoke. The immediate goal was to stop the open heap roasting. What's the ecological paradigm? Earlier, it was just the idea that this is a country richly blessed with natural resources. There's plenty to go around, and yes, we may have some problems here, but, you know, this is a big country. It's like saying we can shoot buffalo, we can shoot passenger pigeons until you realize that you've shot all the buffalo and all the passenger pigeons. A deeper paradigm, though, was from George Perkins Marsh, an interesting fellow from Vermont who became a diplomat for the U.S. and uh, Mediterranean countries. He wrote a book called Man Versus Nature. Having been a scholar of sorts, he remembered all the descriptions in classical writing about the Arcadian woods and how big forests played role they played in the mythology of Greece and Rome. And he went out there, there weren't any more forests. What happened? And he put his mind on it and began to realize that man can, in fact, have a permanent impact on nature, in this case, by overforestation. What are the consequences when you denude forests? You ruin the water cycle. Instead of the humid woods retaining water throughout the year so the streams flow steadily, 
You end up having barren ground. The land immediately gets drenched with downpour, siltation into the streams. The fish die and uh, goes on and on. And in Ducktown, the weather actually changed. The scientists figured out it was 20 degrees hotter in Ducktown on a summer day because there wasn't any vegetation. At the same time, Georgia, while they're struggling to make this case, bumped into a massive effort by the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the U.S. Forest Service who were doing the survey of the southern Appalachian forest. The government had its own concerns about resources. They were afraid they were running out of timber because now with industrial logging, they were logging out the country faster than anybody thought possible, and they thought, we're going to have a timber drought. So federal scientists are... Uh, tromping all over the southern Appalachians, and then a local logging uh, baron by the name of Will Shippen ran into a fellow named Mr. Day from the USDA and made the connection and said, you need to write the attorney general, and he did. And the attorney general answered right back and said, thank you, I need all the help I can get. In fact, it is your duty to do all you can to research this problem to help me on my case. What we have here is a conjunction. We have the problem of the smelter smoke. But we have industrial logging going on, but the industrial loggers have their interest in this, too, because they're beginning to worry about the state of their woods. And then they meet up with the USDA. And when it came time to put this case together, there was something fascinating going on. I have here a copy of the final brief from uh, Georgia to the U.S. Supreme Court. In there, there is only one case citation in a 70-page brief. My lawyer friends in here know you cannot write 70 pages for an appellate court and cite only one case. Why didn't they cite any more cases? Because the law was thin. What they did instead was to quote for almost 70 pages every finding by the U.S. Department of Agriculture in their survey of the southern Appalachian forest. Forest conservation won this case. And that's how Oliver Wendell Holmes, in his famous decision of Georgia versus Tennessee Copper Company, said in 1907, this is a suit by a state for an injury in its capacity as a quasi-sovereign. In short, it doesn't have anything to do with nuisance. The state has an interest independent of and behind the titles of its citizens and all the earth and air and within its domain. It has the last word as to whether its mountains shall be stripped of their forest and its inhabitants shall breathe pure air. That is one of the key decisions in the history of American environmental law, and it came because of actions that were pursued by mountaineer farmers right here in the southern Appalachians. And this case still has great weight. It was cited and quoted extensively in 2007, exactly a century later in the case of Massachusetts versus EPA, when Massachusetts was suing the EPA for failure to uh, create and let uh, regulations to control carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases. So from the very first U.S. Supreme Court air pollution case arising out of these mountains, you go to the very first global warming case, citing that same 100-year-old decision. That's the tie. Very quickly now, the search for a remedy. Georgia had their right to an injunction. They tried to get things fixed. The copper companies were perfectly willing to stop open heap roasting because for them it was economically wasteful and it was slow. They eventually developed a way to do pyritic smelting, which allowed them to do the whole process inside of furnaces. The trouble was, while that ended open heap roasting, it meant that they could vastly increase production, and the volume of smoke grew exponentially. So, yes, they fixed one thing, but created a much bigger problem. 
Then the state of Georgia said, well, how about tall stacks? So the Tennessee Copper Company puts a stack up to 325 feet tall to disperse the smoke. Dispersion makes sense. After all, if you need to be around a cigar smoker, would you rather be inside a closed automobile or out on a park? You can say the same about heavy perfume on an elevator, but I'll stop there. (laughs) The trouble with dispersion is that it didn't work in Ducktown. As tall as that stack was, the mountains were even higher. And what ended up happening instead is that it merely spread the smoke further around the basin, impacting more farms and more forests. The cure eventually ended up being the creation of acid plants. These mining companies were not stupid. They wanted better technology. And as you can see in the name of Ducktown Sulfur, Copper, and Iron, their biggest hope was to make use of the sulfur. Why? Because the South had millions of acres of worn-out cotton fields that needed fertilizer. Where were they going to get it? The South had enormous deposits of phosphate rock, North Carolina, South Carolina, Florida, and Louisiana. But phosphate rock does not work as fertilizer until it's been reduced by the application of sulfuric acid. Where are you going to get the acid? Well, it's all going up in smoke right now in Ducktown. But they eventually figured out a way to create plants to convert a good deal of the smoke into sulfuric acid. And that's why those enormous rail yards were around those plants carrying whole train loads of tank cars with sulfuric acid to be applied to phosphate to make fertilizer for southern farms. Nothing's simple when you start studying it. There's always benefits and there's always minuses, right? Time doesn't permit me to go into the remainder of the Supreme Court case, but I think we've got that far enough. Let's talk about the reclamation, and I'll open for some questions. New players came on board eventually. When the litigation was over, the TVA shows up in 1933. They got two interests. One is that all that siltation coming down the Ocoee River from the Ducktown Basin is ruining the power works in their three dams. Second, the TVA, in its authorizing legislation, had a stated mandate to pursue soil conservation. And at the same time, the Soil Conservation Service was created. Stuart Chase wrote a book called Rich Land, Poor Land. And one of the gentlemen here was talking to me about it, and I thought of the title of what he was probably looking at. Stuart Chase was one of the New Deal insiders with uh, Roosevelt's administration. And he uh, wrote a whole chapter about Ducktown, using that as the exemplar of what would happen as the end result of bad soil practices. And he asked, what would happen if all of America became a Ducktown? The pressure was on now to revegetate the Ducktown Basin, and the copper companies were on board, too. They'd already lost a significant judgment against TVA's predecessor, TEPCO, Tennessee Electric Power Company, for damage to the dams. But this land was so ruined, 16 feet of a wash down the river. How are you going to grow trees? Well, they sure tried. Here's a picture of the CCC crews out there trying to plant trees in the Ducktown Basin. But... More often than not, the vast majority of these trees died. It was so bad that it took generations of very hard work by the U.S. Forest Service, by the forest agencies of Tennessee and the state of Georgia, universities uh, here in Knoxville and in Athens, Georgia. It took several generations to develop methods that would actually grow sustainable trees in this area. They had to find the kind of plants that would grow, If you go there now, the trees are rather ugly, gnarly pines. They aren't those great white pines you like to see, and they're certainly not the hardwoods. But something's growing, and humus is now developing. 
In other areas, it was grasses. The TVA made extensive studies of uh, the area. They even studied the soil chemistry, how it had been impacted by the copper industry. But another player came on board in 1976, Whitewater. The Ocoee River, most of it actually doesn't run free, but it goes through two flumes. And what it does is take water out of the riverbed, runs it horizontally along the mountain in a wooden tunnel, and then it allows it to drop straight down into the powerhouse with greater force. In 1976, one of those flumes went out of action, so the water was flowing free for the first time in a long time, and the whitewater crowd heard about it, and they came in droves to the Coe Gorge. And then the TVA said, well, have fun while you're at it, but we're going to shut this thing down as soon as we fix the flume. And by this time, outdoor recreation had gained such an important value, not only in the public mind, but also for its economic importance, that the Tennessee legislators wisely worked out a deal in Congress with the TVA to allow whitewater during the warm months and weekends. But the problem was when they got in that water at first, it was awful. It would burn the skin. Water quality now became an issue. And now you had the EPA and then Tennessee's counterpart, TDEC, created to enforce water quality standards, and now you had a loud crowd of folks who wanted better water. How bad was it? 1996, the ECOE was the site of the Olympic whitewater events. They did an environmental impact study for that, and the biologists couldn't find anything alive in the river. It was biologically dead. The siltation and the mineral content from upstream in the Ducktown Basin had killed the food chain from the bottom up. Oh, the tributaries coming in, they were fine. There was trout and all kinds of lovely things, but the river was dead. Last step. The mining industry stopped in the 1980s. The chemical industry stopped around 2000. And then it happened that Occidental Petroleum was the last owner here, and they were facing the Superfund law, which would have held them liable for the massive cleanup. They knew that. They knew it the hard way because Occidental ended up footing the bill for the Love Canal incident in the 1970s. So their attorneys were smart. They got in touch with the EPA, says, we've got to fix this. We will spend whatever money you want, however you want us to do it, as long as we don't get it declared a federal Superfund site. The deal was struck, and they have done tremendous work. They put filters on these uh, tributaries there to draw off the minerals out of the water, and every day they draw out enough minerals to build two cars. In some sections, to keep the area from being poisoned, they put uh, hundreds of yards of tubings to redirect streams around contaminated land so it could re-enter the river as clean. But you get the idea. Big case, mountaineers push this thing. It has impact all the way up to modern day and a great story to be told in the mountains. Questions? I've read that there are people in that community now that want to preserve some of that denuded area as part of their historical culture. Did you run into any of that? Yes, I did. And that is an excellent point. We cannot forget that the Dugtown Basin was home to a very large and proud community of miners and their families. They have every right to be proud of what they did. Many people, you go to the museum today, will tell you how much they enjoyed being in a place that was utterly unique, the way the sunsets would play on the color landscape. And they all tell me that, isn't that nice? We didn't have any chiggers, mosquitoes, or snakes. <laughs> And eventually developed that the revegetation efforts were getting so successful that the amount of denuded land had uh, significantly diminished. 
and the arrangements were made to preserve at least some of it around the Ducktown Basin Museum at the site of the Burra Burra Mine. Why did the mining stop uh, you know, when you said in the 80s or whatever it was? Did they run out of materials or just because of the litigation? Uh, it wasn't the litigation so much by that time, but a combination of factors. All mining communities are fated to die when they play out their resources. That's just the way it is. And by now, the mining in the Copper Basin had gone 3,000 feet deep. It's 1,800 above sea level. That meant they went the commensurate amount below sea level uh, chasing copper. But the further you go in a mine, the more expensive it is to do the mining. And the mining ores were of lesser quality. The cost of production increased significantly. And let's face it, the cost of complying with the modern environmental regulations. That was also a factor. And then the third factor is that they're competing in America against countries that, frankly, don't have such strict standards if they have them at all. What was the mortality rate like in that area with sulfuric rain and acid rain? That's one of the most interesting things about this. There was there's very little attention at all to health implications of sulfur dioxide in this case. It wasn't seriously argued by the state because they simply did not have the science to support it. In fact, uh, it's not until the 1990s that I saw full-scale go- federal government work up on the health in- implications of sulfur dioxide. That's the whole science of industrial hygiene, that is, worker exposure to hazardous substances. And it simply was in its infancy then and did not arise. In fact, some of the Ducktown doctors uh, were counterintuitive about that. They said sulfur is a germicide, and if people have bad lungs, well, Let's park them in a lawn chair downwind from the smelters and see what that does for them. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you, folks, for coming. Thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at knoxlib.org.